Hallelujah. Blessed be your name, Lord God. Today, once again, we are so grateful to be your people. And we know that you invite all people to be your people. But we also know that we are not people who would be worthy of that if it were not for your grace and the gift of your Son, our Savior. The Christ child of Bethlehem is the Christ of the cross. And you, Lord Jesus Christ, you are our Redeemer. You are our Savior. You are the one who gave yourself for us. In this season especially, Lord, we want to remember and go further in our understanding of what it means to acknowledge that you have come to live with us and that you came to die for us and that you promise to return to us, that you are, as it were, the once and future king, the all-knowing, all-wise, ever-ruling, reigning God. Your word is a light to our feet, Lord. It's a lamp for our path. As we open your word today, we pray that you would shine your light into our hearts. We have needs, Lord. We have areas where we are confused, places where we are weary, struggles that we are facing, temptations, trials, challenges in our own personal lives and in the world in which we live. We believe that you have answers. But most of all, Lord, we come to you because we want to worship you, not just for your answers, not just for your gifts, but to bring the gift of ourself to you, to say we, we lay down before you our lives, our hearts, in humble worship of you, and ask that you would speak to us today through your word and by your spirit to show us the meaning, the purpose of your message to us today. Amen. It's an adage that you see on many signs, on buttons and cards, and it's one of the familiar phrases of the Christmas season. Wise men still seek him. You've seen it before, I'm sure, haven't you? Wise men still seek him. It comes from that aspect of the Christmas story that involves these gentlemen known as wise men. Not wise guys, by the way. <laughs> I guess you could call them that, but it has a different meaning in certain contexts, a few, none of which are particularly relevant to these, the magi. We're going to talk about them not only today, but in the weeks ahead, because they really form a magi meaning to this series of teachings. There is something to be seen in the lives of these wise men who traveled so far at such great cost, with such real risk, to do something so unusual, so unexpected, really. Why? Why? Why did they go so far? Where did they come from? Who are they? And what does their worship mean? Because their coming to the Christ is recorded for a reason. And so we're going to be looking at that during this series that I have entitled The Christmas Harvest. For those of you who are part of PCF or who have been journeying with us in these days, you know that the Lord has spoken to us about 2020 and said that it would be a year of harvest. And then again and again throughout this year, I've preached on different aspects of harvest. I would like to believe, and in fact, it is my faithful expectation, which is an Advent way of thinking, by the way, that the Lord is going to kind of bring some of these strands together in this culminating series of 2020 
this teaching time in which you and I, I hope, will move forward with the purpose of the Lord strongly rooted, implanted in our hearts. Because as I have said about each of the themes that the Lord has given us each year, these are never things that we leave behind, you know, like so much dust that we just kick off of our feet once the year is gone. Each one of those thematic focal points that the Lord has given us over the past years and that he shall give us in time going forward are things we carry with us. In fact, in the story, uh, uh, the, the, the story of uh, the birth of Jesus and all the events that transpire, right? The extraordinary visitation of the angels, not only to Jesus' earthly parents, Mary and Joseph, but also to Mary's cousins. Uh, we looked at that some years ago in our Advent series. The, the visitation of the angel Gabriel to Zechariah and to Elizabeth who are the parents of John the Baptist. The visitation of the angels to the shepherds and the shepherds to the holy family and ultimately the story of the Magi, the wise men of the East coming. All of these uh, aspects of the story and later on, Simeon and Anna who see the infant child Jesus when he's being dedicated by his parents at the temple and make extraordinary prophetic pronouncements about it. We are told that Mary pondered all of these things in her heart. In other words, she recognized what was going on was all evidence of God's work in the world. And she didn't understand all of it. How could she? I don't understand all of it. In fact, that's one of the reasons why, and why I'm glad that we do, every year at Christmas time in the Advent season, we look at these stories again, these records of history, these people of faith, and we look at their words and their actions and the meditations of their heart to find the deeper meaning and resonance of all of these things in our lives today by the grace of God's Spirit. So we also carry these things in our heart. We will carry harvest in our heart all of our days if we are following the light of the Lord, if the star of God's scriptures is guiding us and the life of God's spirit is in us and guiding us forward, then the Lord of the harvest is with us and we will carry harvest in our hearts and harvest will form a mission and purpose for us all of our days. Will you say that if you agree with me and that if you can recognize that that's part of your purpose, in fact, it's central to your purpose as a follower of Jesus to be a person who sows the seed of God's word, who shows the reality of God's life, who is a witness and a worker for the things of the kingdom so that the kingdom would multiply and more would come to that truth and more would come to our Savior. If you can agree with that, then I simply want you to repeat this after me. Harvest lives in my heart. Say that. Harvest lives in my heart. It's true. It is true if your word, O Lord, I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. And that when and if I do sin against you, and I do, that I would have the confidence of your word and the spirit who inspired it to come boldly before the throne of grace, confessing my sin and asking forgiveness and returning to the focus on my faith, on my Lord, on my mission. That's what the harvest of the Lord is about. And a Christmas harvest means that we won't be distracted from that purpose 
either by the darkness and despair and disease and death and destruction and division of the world around us, or heaven forbid, even any of those things coming within us, but instead we will continue to sow the seed of God's word and water it by the water of the Spirit and let the light of the Lord shine on us and let the fruit of the Spirit be borne out in us as we abide in Christ and he abides in us and that we would, in the empowerment of the Spirit, live out the life of faith. We won't let the darkness of the world around us destroy the harvest of hope within us. And perhaps unusually or, or ironically, I guess you could say, we also won't let our celebration eclipse the reason for the season. Let me put it in simpler terms. I don't want you to be depressed and despairing because it's a COVID Christmas. Let Christmas conquer COVID. That's what Christmas is about. Christmas is about carrying on victorious in destiny, the light shining in the darkness, and the darkness can't comprehend it, can't overcome it. It doesn't mean that the darkness isn't there. It means that the light is greater, shines brighter. So don't despair. But also, don't get distracted by the tinsel and the trimmings to make it about some kind of materialistic moment or simply about an escapism of trying to find fun in the season while not recognizing the reason for the season. I'm not saying don't decorate and celebrate. In fact, I want to add again, as I said during our patio service this morning, my thanks to declare to the seniors ministry, the women's ministry, the men who helped, everybody who is involved in decorating the church. It's wonderful. If you're here on the patio you, patio, you could see this morning decorations. There's decorations in my office and in the hallways. There's more that's coming. We are trimming the house of the Lord. We are festooning it for the festival of these days. We are celebrating. Do that. But do it in a way that's focused on the reason. Focused on the purpose, productive in the spirit, centered on and around the truth of Jesus. That's where there will be fruitful Christmas harvest. So as I mentioned, today we're looking in Matthew chapter 2, and we're actually going to look at the entirety of the Magi story in the gospel today. But we'll be honing in on specific aspects of it over the coming weeks. We'll get an overarching uh, familiarity with it today as we also put a special focus on the beginning of that story. And actually, the story begins before the beginning of that story. What do I mean by that? The Magi make the mission that they make. They take the journey that they take because the word of God, in ancient times prior, hundreds of years earlier, had spoken through the mouth of prophets to foretell, to forecast, to make a, a vision of the future available to the people. Messianic messages of the Old Testament that the Magi were familiar with, we'll talk about how today, 
And because of their awareness of those messages and because of their awareness of the importance of those messages to them personally as well as to the world, they make the mission that they do. In other words, they come because they see a star rising. But they see the star rising because they were looking. And the reason they were looking was because they knew that God had been speaking. So you and I, if we are going to be wise men, wise women, wise people in this dark world, we also need to be looking for the light of the word, the light of God's word that speaks to us in advance to prepare us. In fact, that's what Advent is all about. It's about people who prepare. People who prepare based on the prophecies of God, based on the promises of God. Advent, as you know, is that traditional period. It's observed uh, in different ways in different parts of the body of Christ. Um, But what's most familiar to us in the Western world is the four Sundays prior to Christmas are on the calendar, the season of Advent. And they are about people of faith anticipating the Christmas holiday so that when we arrive at December 25th, we don't just suddenly wake up one morning and say, you know, here's the day. But there's all kinds of preparations that have been going on in advance of that. All kinds of activity. Now, in the world, we recognize a lot of that has to do with shopping and buying gifts, which we exchange. By the way, the gifts that we exchange are typically seen as being tied to the mission of the Magi. The Magi are the first ones who are described as coming bearing gifts for the Christ child. So you and I, on the birthday of Christ, in as much as we observe his birthday on December 25th, it's not likely that he was born on that calendar day, but that's the day that we observe his birth. On that day, his birthday, we get the gifts. That's because really the greatest gift is not what the Magi brought to Christ, but what Christ brings to the world. It is the Magi, the wise men, recognizing what has arrived in the world that prompts their worship. The gift giving is worship. So when you are buying presents for people in these days, remember that what you are also doing is showing love in the name of Jesus Christ. And by showing love in his name to others, you are in fact showing love to him. That's what he says. He says that if you are going to love God, love others in his place, in his name, by his spirit. So Advent is a time of preparing, and one of the ways we prepare is by getting gifts to share with one another, by also decorating our homes, our, the spaces that we live in, because we're really decorating our lives in the same way that God has decorated our world, with light, with joy, with life. The fragrance of a fir tree in your home is life growing in your home. And then it's an unexpected thing, you know, to have a a seven-foot tree or whatever it is standing tall in your home is a reminder of the harvest, if you'll let it be. A reminder that God grows good things from little seeds hidden in the ground to big trees with branches spread out wide to give room for the birds of the air to dwell in and the fruits of that tree to be borne out on. That takes time. But the farmer who anticipates the fruitfulness of the seed is an Advent kind of person. It's someone who believes that as we prepare and expect, something is growing and soon it will be showing. What we primarily 
celebrate at Christmas is what we primarily focus on in Advent, and that is the incarnation of Christ. God made flesh. God come to us in human form, not just the mask of a human, not a disguise of a human, but truly human. The incarnation is a recognition of a mystery that you and I can never fully comprehend, but we can bow down before it and worship. And it is this mystery that one who is absolutely, totally, and eternally God became absolutely, totally, and mysterious as this is, eternally a man. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In becoming a man, he made men eternal. Not just men, but humankind. In other words, you and I are somehow shaped by Jesus into true humanity by very virtue of the fact that he made himself to be truly human, fully God and fully man, the incarnation. And that incarnation comes not only to reveal the magnificence of God's mystery to us, but also to fulfill his goodness to us. So that when the angels said to the shepherds, peace on earth, goodwill among people, what they were saying is not only should there be cheer and kindness among people, but that very cheer and kindness among people comes from the fact that God has shown grace and kindness to people. And it is his presence on earth that brings peace. That babe born in Bethlehem is the prince of peace. That's what he produces. Part of the productivity of the incarnation is peace multiplied in our world, in our hearts. Why do we do this every year? I think in part it recognizes the reality that we need the reminder, but it also is a harvest cycle. Every year there's the planting of the seed. There's the rains that come early in the season and late in the season. There's labor in the fields, and then there's bringing forth a harvest. And that reality... Seed time and harvest. It's a part of the promise about, uh, about this world that God has made. Do you remember in the days of Noah when after the flood, God placed his bow in the heavens, the rainbow promise, and said, I'll never again flood the earth. And seed time and harvest will continue. The seasons will continue until the time of fulfillment, the completion of all things. There is this regulation of our world and our lives that comes from God's word. And by recognizing that it is God who rules the day and the night, and it is God who rules the cycles of years, and no matter what comes in any given year, you may get a real whammo of a year like 2020. It didn't surprise God, and God is still in charge. And that, that's a, a promise that at Christmas time brings special hope for us. Because Christmas time and Advent are about people who are in the midst of the struggle being reminded of the promise. Let me say that again. Advent and Christmas is about people who are in the midst of the struggle being reminded of the promise. In Advent, we focus our faith on the aspects of patient waiting and joyous expectation that lead to the arrival of Christ in our world, not only the first time with the birth of Jesus, but also by looking before that time at the people who were looking forward to it. 
and also by considering the time that has flowed since then and how you and I in subsequent generations still continue every year to remind ourselves and to rehearse as it were, to, to reenact the story of the arrival of Christ because we not only look back to the glory of his coming in those ancient times, but we also look forward to the promise of the glory of his coming that is yet to come. We also are people looking forward. We also are people waiting with faithful expectation for the return of the king. And so Advent gives us an opportunity to contemplate what it means to live in the tension of those two things. As people who are aware that Christ has already come and that there are gifts that have been given. There is a door that has been opened. There is a light that has been lit for us. But we are also people who are living in expectation. And the expectation is not only of Christ's return, but also of our coming before him, standing before him. And what will we have to offer him? All we will have is our lives. But at that point, it will be a question of what did we do with them? Advent is a time to think about that. How are we living? Are we living for the reason of the season in every season? Is the hope of Christmas the hope of every season and day of our life? Is the love of the Lord evident in every season? So there's a mission for us in the message of Jesus. It forms for us a focus for our lives and a center to where and how we think and live. When we read the Messianic prophecies of the Old Testament and then we look at how the gospel accounts take those promises, those prophecies and apply them, we are reminded of this reality that I've just described, that these were people living in difficult times and the promises actually came not only in the midst of difficult times, but in a real sense through those difficult times, through the dark doings of wicked people, desperate situations, dangerous adversaries. In other words, we find a world that is not only like our own, it is our own. 2,000 years may have passed since the coming of Christ and 2,000 more from, from the time when Abraham, for instance, was receiving promises from God. And yet the world is no, not really different. Technologies may change, styles and fashions may change, and the rulers in their offices and on their thrones come and go. But it's the same dark world that we are living in today. And the desperation that those people faced is not different from the problems and needs that you and I face. But it's into this darkness that God shines his light. The light of hope. The light of Advent. There's a reason why in the Advent season, typically there's lighting of candles. It's more and more light shining into the world. Now, I mentioned the ancient prophecies, and I want to look at one in particular that describes this circumstance. Isaiah chapter 8 actually comes before one of the most familiar Advent passages for us, Isaiah chapter 9. But before we get into 9, I want to look at Isaiah chapter 8 and see what the, the, the premise is that gives rise to the promises of Isaiah 9. The Hebrew prophet uh, Isaiah was describing a time uh, when when Oppression was coming to the people of God and it was coming as an act of discipline because those people had actually disobeyed uh, the Lord. They had become fixated 
on other things. They had put as a priority um, to seek worldly power and to accommodate uh, the idolatry of the nations around them. They looked to national um, alliances for, for power, for uh, military prowess, for financial gain. And in doing so, not only did they turn to other nations and other rulers for certain alliances and leverage uh, for international relations and, and, and for commercial interests, but they also turned to the gods and rulers of those nations to accommodate them in many ways in their own society, in their own faith. In other words, in the northern kingdom and in the southern kingdom, during the time of Isaiah, there was more and more uh, an accommodation of false beliefs and idolatrous religion and violation of the things of the Lord. The rich were becoming richer and the poor were becoming poorer. The middle class was dissipating as the haves and have-nots were dividing further. The judges were ruling unjustly. There was graft and uh, uh, there was uh, bribery. The um, ruling class, the kings, were operating on the basis of their own interest rather than the word of God, the will of God, the needs of the people. The religious practices of the people had become more and more formalistically empty. In other words, they were more about the outward show and less and less of the heart of the people who was invested. Now, there were people of faith, and they are spoken to in this passage too. But essentially, what the Lord is saying in uh, the prophetic passages like this is, to his people who have turned wayward, he's saying, you're looking to other powers, and you're looking to uh, other gods, and so I'm going to turn you over to those other powers. I'm going to turn you over to those other gods. I'm going to use them to discipline you, to show you that they aren't in charge, and also to show you that I am. But not only will I do that out of my love for you in order to bring you back, because the Lord disciplines those whom he loves. Like a father, he's saying, I'm going to bring a spanking on you, and it's going to remind you of who I am, but I'm doing it out of love. In fact, it could even be thought that, in a way, the message of the prophets very much aligns with that, that old adage of the parent that a child always finds hard to believe, but any parent finds it's actually true. This is going to hurt me more than it hurts you, the parent says, right? And it's because of the love of the parent for the child. But it's also out of that love that the parent says, I can't let this continue. I'm going to discipline you in order to bring you back to me, to show you that those false gods and those other rulers aren't greater than I am. But in doing that, I'm going to use them to discipline you, and I'm going to use you to show them who I am, so that when I bring you back to myself and finally bring them down, even they will have to recognize that I am God, not only of you, but of all. So I will reaffirm my covenant to you, I will return you to me after the proper discipline and I will use all of this to bring about a harvest of a greater blessing, a greater message, a greater ministry to all tribes and tongues, all people. But the people who reject this, who reject the Lord and reject this word, and there were plenty that rejected what Isaiah was saying, are people who no matter what they think they're going to find by searching elsewhere, they're not going to find the light of the Lord. They will be wandering around in darkness and despair. In verse 11 of chapter 8, the prophet says, this is what the Lord says to me with his strong hand upon me, warning me not to follow in the way of this people. Do not call conspiracy everything this people calls a conspiracy. 
Do not fear what they fear and do not dread it. There's a message here for you and I today, which is if we are focused on the Lord, then the light of the Lord will illuminate our path. But if we are going to be looking to people in the world, whether through their religious systems or their secular systems, but it's void of the reality of God, then you're going to be wandering in the darkness and there's going to be all kinds of concerns, fears and conspiracies. But the Lord says, don't listen to that. Look to me. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear reverently. In other words, he's the one you should bow down before. He's the one that you should give everything over to. He's the one that you want to be right with. And if you're wrong with him, then the dread of that should bring you back to him and not wandering around looking for something else. Verses 20 to 22, consult God's instruction, the testimony of warning, the prophecy of scripture. If anyone does not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. It's in that context that we see people wandering in the darkness because they have wandered away from the word, distressed and hungry. They have wandered away from the Lord. They roam through the land looking for some kind of harvest of hope, looking for something that will fill them with hope, but they've rejected the one thing, the only one who can. So they are famished and they become angry because fear produces rage. They look upward and curse their king and their God. They look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom. And they will go deeper into it. They'll go deeper downward into utter darkness. That's the premise that Isaiah 9 is built upon. Because Isaiah 9 says, Nevertheless, these people who walked in darkness will see a great light. And here, he, the Lord is speaking to those regions in the north. Remember this year when we were going through the uh, Joshua generation and the, the, uh, the allotment of the land, we saw that these tribes that are mentioned right here in Isaiah, Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, these are tribes that were allotted areas in the north in what will be Galilee, which is the reason that uh, Jesus, though he was not born there, is raised there. Jesus' earthly parents, Mary and Joseph, come from Galilee, and uh, ultimately Jesus will be raised most of his life in Galilee. And there is a prophecy to Galilee that's called Galilee of the Nations, by the way of the sea. In other words, it's a part of Israel that was uh, trafficked by, um, by non-Jewish peoples, because from the Mediterranean into the inland areas, into the uplands and highlands, it would be logical to go through Galilee. Galilee acts as a kind of uh, passageway. And it was also a region that was surrounded by, um, ultimately, many Samaritans who are intermingled in the area, uh, and also non-Jewish people groups, the Gentiles. So there's a message here that is saying, on the part of the Lord, even though I am going to bring these disciplines, and it looks like the Assyrian exile and the Babylonian exile, these are the empires that ultimately, though it is a future focus for Isaiah, ultimately they are going to decimate the, uh, the nation of ancient Israel, and Gentiles are going to move into those areas, yet the Lord says, I still have a word of hope for those lands, and not only for my people in those lands, but ultimately for all people of all lands. The people walking in darkness will see a great light. Those living in the land of deep, deep darkness will see a light 
dawn on them. And listen, they will rejoice at that light as people rejoice at the harvest. It's a harvest hope that they're looking to because the fruit of that harvest is this. A child is born to us. A son is given. And the righteous government will be founded upon him. He'll be wonderful. He will have wisdom, counselor. He will be God. He will be your father. He will be your prince, a prince of peace. He will rule on David's throne. The zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. That is one of the Old Testament prophecies that produces for us the expectation of Advent. The same hope that people in ancient times had looking forward to Christ is the hope that we recognize as we look back on his arrival and forward to his return. That Jesus Christ is a savior for all peoples. That he is a light that will banish the darkness. As John says in the first chapter of his gospel, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it. The darkness cannot overwhelm it, cannot snuff it out. And Jesus is the first fruit of a harvest that is actually to be celebrated in all seasons. In other words, the joy of Christmas is a joy that you and I are to carry in our hearts all year long. The harvest lives in my heart because the Savior is alive in me. I am alive in him. So a Christmas harvest is about this kind of life being born out in us. And it recognizes that we are living in the midst of darkness and dread and despair and disease and death and yes, above all, sin, our own sin, which may mean that there are times where the Lord comes to discipline us. Also, a world of sin, so that even if we are walking in faith, we will face situations and circumstances that we wouldn't call ideal. And yet what God says is, don't lose hope in me. Don't lose trust in me. Don't give up. Wait patiently for me. If your faith is fixed on me, my light is in you, whether you can see it or not. It's like a seed sown into the ground. And even though you can't see the seed, it's growing. And it's going to bring forth fruit in due season. So don't give up. Trust me to be your savior. Trust me to be your helper. Live in the light of my word and by the light of my spirit. I know you're in the dark, but I'm shining my light on you. I will provide a pathway of hope for you. I'll work all things together for good. Now, I want to, in the um, concluding minutes of the message, talk about the connection to the Magi. What has this got to do with the Magi? Well, for one thing, the Magi are familiar with these passages that I am describing. How could they be? Why would they be? First of all, who are they, right? And what is their mission? Who are the Magi? That's the mystery of the Magi to begin with. Who are these men that travel this great distance? And then the majesty of the Magi. What does their status reveal? Why would people like this come to the birth of a child born to, you know, rural, lowly parents who are, you know, the child is born in a stable. Now, it's not to the stable that the Magi come. That's one of the kind of mistaken notions of Christmas that we see in cards and posters and pictures. The shepherds and the Magi all gathered around in the stable. No, the Magi come later 
uh, although Jesus is still young, probably within the first two years of Jesus' life, they finally arrive to the house that Jesus and his family are staying in. But it would still most likely be a humble house in Bethlehem that they find him in. Why would people like this, courtly people, sometimes called kings, that's part of the mystery that we'll look at, are these guys kings? If so, why would royal, rich people like this, wise and educated, come to a family like that? And what does their worship reveal? Because they don't just come to visit that child and his parents. They come to worship that child and enrich his family by their giving. Why? What's the message of the Magi? That's what we'll be looking at in coming weeks. First, let's talk a bit about who these men are. They only show up in the Matthew Gospel account. So you'll be familiar with the fact that the Christmas story basically comes to us primarily through the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke. Uh, There are some things that we can derive from the other Gospels that that, that sort of round that out, maybe uh, by inference and implication, especially uh, John has a kind of an alternate narrative, an alternate nativity of uh, Christ as creator. The blessing of four Gospels is that we get such a rich, well-rounded view. And each one of them has something specific and special to offer. Matthew offers us the message of the Magi and their mission. So it's unique to the Matthew account. These are most likely men that are employed in or part of a priestly caste of court advisors with a very ancient position in the Mesopotamian world, and specifically among the Medes and Persians. So they have this uh, scholarly kind of role. Now, the word magi, uh, which refers to their wisdom, is also the root of where we get the word magician. But don't make the mistake of thinking of them as magicians, although sometimes you will see them referred to in certain texts, commentary texts, as sorcerers or so forth. That's really a reflection of of the way that the ancient world operated. The counterpart to what these men were in their time is today highly educated and also administrative figures. So they would be similar to what we would find in, for instance, uh, the uh, ambassadorial class of governance or people that were working in uh, national security. People with a high education, people who were Um, well aware of uh, governmental interrelations, cultural interactions. They they serve in this story as something like cultural attaches of the royalty that they represent. They are not, in fact, likely kings. Why are they called kings? Well, it comes from the fact that they served kings. They served close to kings. They were in the court of kings. It is possible that one or more of them may actually have had a royal status, been a prince, but it's probably unlikely. It's more likely that you could think of them as ambassadors. They are sent representing kings and royalty and royal lines. Now, there are said to be three, um, not in the scriptures, but in, uh, that's part of the, the sort of folklore that is built up around them, and sometimes you even hear them named. Those names don't come from the scriptures either. Um, they, they may or may not have a, a relation to fact, but in all likelihood, the wise men that came was probably an entourage, a retinue of more than three. The number three likely reflects the fact that there are three specific gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, that we are told they come carrying. 
but there's probably more than that of them because, in fact, they make an, a long journey and it would have been a dangerous one and they also are wealthy, so there would have been guards. They, would have, they have access to and interaction with King Herod and perhaps other kings as they make their journey from the east. So this is probably a fairly significant group. It wouldn't be surprising if it was a dozen people or maybe even two or three dozen people that are actually coming. But they're significant. And they're educated, but they also have a, a religious, a spiritual interest in uh, aspect to their work and interest in this mission. Their scholarship is related to astronomy, the signs in the heavens, and also the studying of ancient sacred texts. Not only their own in the uh, Medio Persian culture, the Babylonian precursors to that, but also those that they interacted with. So, how is it that they come to know the Jewish scriptures? It is because of the captivity. Get this. It is because God disciplined his people who were wayward and sent them into Babylon. So the Jewish people came into Babylon carrying their scriptures, carrying the literal word, carrying their reverence for God and his word in, his, in their hearts, their knowledge of his word, the rabbis who studied the scriptures and taught in the synagogues of Babylon, and also who gained favor because of God. Did the Jewish people have favor in Babylon even though it was a time of oppression, a time of loss, a time of destruction in their country? Indeed they did. In my personal devotions, I've just finished reading the book of Daniel. Daniel, a man of God who is elevated to a courtly advisor during the days of the Babylonian and later Persian empires. In other words, Daniel is a magi. He is elevated to the magi class and he continues to serve the Lord and the scriptures of the Lord to such a degree that there are times when Daniel and others like him, Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael, or three other Hebrew men who received Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or Abednego, they also continue to serve the Lord and serve his scriptures. And all of these men face hardships and disfavor in their society because of it. Daniel at one point is sentenced to the lion's den to be devoured by lions. Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael are put into the fiery furnace. But the Lord shuts the mouth of the lion and preserves the life of Daniel. And when those three men are standing in the furnace, there's a fourth man with them, one like the son of man, the scripture has said, because a son is given to them who stands with them in the fire so that they are delivered, not from the trial, but from the devastation that the trial would bring. Even though their guards and their persecutors are burned by the fire, or eaten by the lions. These men of God, they survive. And the other wise, courtly scholars and advisors must have surely taken note of that and said, these men serve a real God. That God is powerful. In fact, the rulers that are described at that time, whether uh, it is Babylonian or later uh, Persian rulers, recognize the reality of the God of Israel and his word as a God of all people. So much so that hundreds of years later, these magi, wise, courtly advisors are still studying the scriptures. And if anything, they may be studying those scriptures more than the Jewish people themselves because they are looking for a star that is described in uh, the book of Numbers, a prophecy that goes all the way back to the time of Moses, Numbers 24-7 says that there is a star that is seen by a prophet. It's an interesting circumstance of hardship and trial once again. 
in the days of Moses following the Exodus, there was another king of an opposing country that Israel was passing through. And Balak, king of Moab, didn't like that Israel was passing through. He didn't like these people who had done such damage as he saw it to the, to the much more powerful kingdom of Egypt coming through his land. So he hired a prophet, Balaam, to curse the people. And in, but instead, Balaam feels compelled by the Holy Spirit to bless the people. Once again, it's an example of a situation that seems dire and, and seems devastating. A king is opposed to you, wants to wipe you out as genocide, is trying to bring curses in the spirit against you. But God uses it to bring a greater blessing than if the king wasn't persecuting them. You see how God takes the thing that seems bad and makes it into something that's even better? So Balaam says, I see him, but not yet, referring to this Messiah king to come. I behold him, but it's a ways off. But there is something that people who would wait patiently for him can look for. A star shall rise out of Jacob. A scepter, meaning a ruler, shall rise out of Israel. That's the star that the wise men are looking for so that when they see it in the heavens and their astronomical measurements mean that it's something new, some kind of supernova, some kind of astronomical event that these men were knowledgeable to know enough that say this is what this means, they come looking for them. And when they come to Jerusalem, which is the capital of the nation, and they come to the leaders, the leaders seem shocked. And in fact, King Herod doesn't even know what to make of there or what to do because he's not familiar with the scriptures. He knows something about the fact that there's a Messiah. Herod, by the way, is supposedly a Jewish king. Really, he's Semitic in derivation, Idumean, meaning that he comes from the Edomite people, but he is seen particularly by the Romans as being essentially a Jewish king. But it's just an ethnic Relationship. It's a, it's a racial connection without spiritual meaning because Herod is not one who searches the scriptures, not one who reveres the Lord. In fact, he's like the people described in the time of Isaiah. He's looking for how he can curry favor and gain power through worldly systems. He's a collaborator with the Romans. He'll do whatever is necessary to make his position stronger and enrich his own personal interests which is why he lies to the wise men and says, well, I want to worship this king too. But really what he wants to do is wipe out any obstacle to his own rule and take out any potential competitors. So he says, when you find where he is, tell me so that I can come and worship him too. But that's not what he's about. But the wise men are. Herod consults with the religious leaders and says, well, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? And they say, there's another prophet of the Old Testament, Micah, who says it's Bethlehem. Micah 5.2, in the, the city of Bethlehem, there will be a leader brought forth, a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So they share this with the wise men, and the wise men then follow the star as it continues to lead them to where they ultimately find the Christ child and his family. And when they do, they fall down on the ground and they worship him and they present him gifts. Now, I've got a little bit more that I want to go on in this, in this message. So bear with me here because I'm going a little bit longer today. But I want to at least touch on a few things that will give us a foundation in the weeks ahead. They present to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. That's going to be the focus of our, of our attention in the coming weeks. What do each one of these gifts say to us? Why do they bring these? 
There's value in each of them, but there's also a message. There's meaning in each of them. And then they make a journey home. And they don't go back the way that they came. They go back a different way because they are continuing not only to follow the star, but the spirit of the Lord. And they are given advice in a dream that makes it known to them that Herod is not reliable or trustworthy. And so they don't go back to Herod, but they do go back home rejoicing. So we've looked at who these men are. I want to say something about what their status reveals. Like Balaam, so many generations before, the Magi also are an indicator that from the very beginning, God has always been interested in reaching all people. The the fact of God's covenant with Israel is not about God trying to exclude people from his love or from his kingdom, but precisely the opposite. In today's world, you and I are sometimes accused, if we are followers of Jesus, of being elitist in a sense. In other words, as though being a Christian means disliking other people and considering yourself somehow a, you know, having most favored nation status with God. But the heart of Christianity is precisely the opposite. We are to be messengers to all people that says this relationship that we have with the Lord, it's not something we deserve. It's not something we earned or could earn. It's something offered to all people. But now we, having been brought into this truth and having this life alive in us, we are going to worship in such a way that our worship bears witness to the truth. Balaam is a prophet for hire, but God uses him as a prophet of the Lord. God will use anyone who is willing to be used by God. God will reach anyone who is willing to be reached by God. Now, in the story of Luke, as I mentioned, we are told about the shepherds who see the angels. I like the fact that the Christmas story reminds us that all people have value in the eyes of God. Jesus is born among humble, working-class people. Jesus is born into an impoverished situation, so much so that they can't even get a hotel room for the night, so much so that they don't even have a crib for their newborn baby. He has to be born in a cave that is used as a feeding and storing area for livestock. What honor comes to that lowly place as the creator of everything is born and placed into a manger, the food holder for animals, beasts of burden. The Lord shows that people in these humble situations have high value. Humble shepherds who are seen as being rough working class are visited by the host of heaven. So that story reveals that There is honor that comes to the humble and lowly. And the Magi reveal the opposite side of that, which is those who are living with kings and and ruling with kings and serving kings, educated, affluent. They know the scriptures. They know the science of the times, the astronomy and the natural world around them. They are wealthy in natural resources, but they come and bow before this little baby They come and bow before a foreign leader, as it were. And they give gifts. And as I mentioned, these gifts are highly valuable. They're also gifts that are specifically associated with the eastern lands that these men come from. So they are gifts that reflect that all the world is coming to honor 
this Messiah. And if I had time, I would uh, enumerate how there are various scriptures that talk about the kings of ancient lands coming to bow down before the Messiah and giving gifts from their lands to that Messiah as a recognition, you are our king. Well, that's probably partly how the Magi came to be associated with kings or the idea of they themselves are kings. But again, they are representative of the courts of foreign kings. But they bring the wealth and riches of those courts as well as the, 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 the formal acknowledgement of those courts. That we see a ruler here and we see a ruler who is greater than us. So in their gifts, we see not only the depth but also the meaning of their worship. And as I mentioned, that's where the focus of this series moves forward. What do we learn about our own worship from the worship of the Magi? So we'll look at each of the three gifts in coming weeks, and we'll examine the meaning that is found in their journeys, both in coming and in going, because there are particular messages for, that, for us today in that. As I come to the conclusion, I want to talk about the journey that we have just gone on with them, their initial journey to Israel, to Jerusalem, and ultimately to Bethlehem. The symbol that dominates that part of the story is the star rising, the star of Bethlehem that guides them. And it evidences the value, the importance of turning to the scriptures as a guide to our ways and a light to our path, especially when the days are dark, especially as time advances. The only reason the wise men knew to look for the star is because they knew to look at the scriptures. And that's because they saw the testimony of those who had faith before them, people like Daniel and the people of Israel. People who were living on the seed of faith that God had planted in them and that they had received in faith. And that seed is productive. The Advent message for you and I today from the Magi of the star is that if we will wait with our eyes open and our heads up, looking, scanning, seeking, asking, seeking, knocking, praying, reading, applying, there will be a fruitful harvest of redemption in our lives and a message of hope for others. We will put our trust in Jesus Christ because he is our redeemer. He is our savior. Lord, may we be like the wise men of old today, searching your word, scanning for the signs of the times as you, Lord Jesus said, not that we would give ourselves over to every conspiracy theory or every fervent fear of the world around us, but quite the opposite, that we, in the midst of that, would be guided by you. That your light would shine in our hearts and through our lives to give us discernment, to know how to move each day in the direction you would have us go in the pattern you would have us walk. Even if it means that we have to go long ways and face hardship. May we have the faith to recognize that even if situations seem to be going wrong, the seed of your word promises you will turn everything to right for those who trust in you and are called by you and hope in and wait on you. So we do that today, Lord. And in the weeks ahead, we pray that you would keep us hopeful and productive in our faith 
and focused on you, Lord Jesus Christ, the one and only Savior of all the world, the light of all humankind. Friend, if you've never turned your life over to that light and that Savior, today is the day to do that. If wise men of old risked their lives, released their wealth, and represented their rulers to come and bow down before that baby, you can bow down before that king because you know he gave his life for you. You know that nothing you have suffered is greater than what he has suffered for you and that his suffering is a seed that brings forth fruitfulness and productivity in your life so that all things can work together for good. Why not let that power, that Lord, be alive in you today? Why not let his hope be yours? Lord, we give our lives and our hearts to you. Receive us as yours and implant the seed of faith within us. In Jesus' name, amen.